Well, after Stephen told you what the text is this morning, um, I only saw a few people filter out. So that's a, I suppose that's a good thing. Um, I'll give you a moment here. I'll kind of look down, and if you want to leave, you're welcome to do that. Um, that would be fine, and I wouldn't blame you for that. Matthew chapter 1. You can go ahead and open your Bibles there if you're not already there. And as we get into the Christmas season, and uh, if you were to sit down with maybe your kids, if you have small children or grandkids or you know, maybe just your family, uh, sit down with a group of people to read the Christmas story in your Bible, if you were to do that, most of you would probably start reading the Christmas story at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. If you look down to verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Seems like an appropriate place to start the Christmas story, and I can completely understand beginning there, especially if you don't have Tim Moshera handy to read all those names, and if you have small children in your house, it would be a little bit difficult to start with chapter 1 and verse 1. Most of the time, we do skip these 17 verses that you find at the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel. And if we do read them, we struggle through the names and we just go, wow, that was a lot of names that was just listed there. Of course, you know, I know that, that many of you all are good Bible students and so you studied the Word of God for a long time and most of us have some idea of why Matthew would have begun his gospel this way. Some of us have some vague concept of this list of names and why this is important, but that, that idea that we have, that doesn't change the fact that this, this passage that Tim read this morning doesn't seem to provide a lot of morning manna for my devotions, you know. You don't get up and go to this and just come away warm most of the time as you read through this. And I was reading this passage this week and studying through this passage, and as I did this, of course it's a, it's a family tree that is listed here, and I started to think about my own family tree, my own family history, and what sort of names and what sort of people you may find in, in my family tree. And when I was in junior high at Timberlake, um, I think seventh grade actually, we did a, a family tree project. Maybe some of you did that when you were in school, and I, I really, as I did that, I found a lot of interesting information, at least I thought it was interesting, about my family background, and I won't share all of that with you this morning. Uh, but I did go back over some of the tidbits of that this week that, that were interesting, and I thought I'd tell you about a couple of those things. We can, tell, we can trace my mom's family line all the way back to the mid-1500s, direct line of descendants back to the mid-1500s, and uh, the, the family line that we can trace through her goes back to Yorkshire, England. Uh, my aunt and uncle went over to England and found a lot of information about our descendants uh, a few years ago, and it's interesting because my mom's family line going all the way back uh, became Methodists when John Wesley was beginning the Methodist movement and while John Wesley was still alive. And in fact, some of my descendants, I read, were actually Methodist pastors who were closely associated with, with Wesley. And Wesley actually stayed at one of my descendants' houses when he would make his trips through and uh, doing his circuit preaching and all of that. And then in the mid-1800s, the family moved over to the United States, immigrated here in the mid-1800s and immigrated to Virginia. And many of the family, still on that side of the family tree, actually live on the, the same farmland that they landed on when they came over here, and they still farm that land about an hour and a half east of here. To this very day, they do that. One of the other things I did this week as I was thinking about family history and my family tree was I signed up for a free trial of one of those ancestry websites. <laughs> I thought, man, what, what, what can we find on here? Maybe some of you pay to do that month after month, and honestly, after doing it, I can sort of understand the appeal of it. Uh, you can find some amazing things just by typing in a few names and doing some, some research on there. And as I did that, I found a picture of my great-grandfather's World War I registration card. And in 1917, the government ordered everyone to register for the draft, and my great-grandfather did that in 1918 at the age of 43. So I guess it was just because he was ordered to do it. 
I, at first I thought, man, he's just a manly man. He was ready to go and uh, was ready to serve his country in that way. But I found all of that, that fascinating, uh, instructive as I looked through that this week. Now, if I were to pull up my family tree here this morning, all the little boxes with names in them, if I were to put that on the screen, honestly, it would look to most of us very much like this list does here in Matthew chapter 1. In the same way, it would just be a a list of names that we would see on the screen in front of us. And if you're just looking at a list of names, most of the time it's really not that interesting. We don't know much about the people in my family tree, several of them. We don't know what they did. We don't know about their, their children much. We just don't know much about their lives. And that would probably be true for most of us as we look at our, our family tree, the names that are, that are in that history. But that's where we need to sort of pull our thinking away from your family tree and my family tree. And we need to start viewing this passage in Matthew 1 as more than just a line of descendants that culminate in Jesus Christ. Matthew wrote this list here for a lot of reasons, a lot of very important reasons. It wasn't accidental that he began his gospel account with this list of names that we see here. If you think back over your Bible, this is not the first time that you see a genealogy in Scripture. Actually, Scripture is filled with genealogies. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis, several times in the Old Testament and Chronicles, there are chapters and chapters of genealogies. And so Scripture has a number of genealogies, lists of family descendants, ancestors that we find. Why are genealogies given so frequently in the pages of Scripture? We'll think all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Verses 27 and 28, where God tells Adam and Eve what they're going to be doing. And what does he tell them? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so God values the multiplication of his image bearers. He values having children and filling the earth with little images of himself. But also remember that after the fall into sin, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, there's an amazing promise that's given to Eve in that passage. What is that promise? It's a promise that a seed, a descendant, will come through her and Adam who will undo the curse of sin. And he will crush the head of the And you think about genealogies in Scripture, it actually would lead us to believe that these genealogies are some of the most important parts of our Bibles. If we're tracing that promise and we're hoping in that promise, then it's, it's very significant that we read and that we understand these genealogies. Because they lead us ultimately to the one who will make everything right that was made wrong. In Genesis chapter 3. And I think that's exactly why Matthew begins his gospel account with this list of names that you have here in Matthew chapter 1. This is not boring. It's not dry academic work with no value. This is a significant, important part of the Christmas story. And I want to I study this together this morning. Now, before we get to specifically what we're going to look at, let me just show you some of the features of this genealogy, and, uh, and hopefully you can see where we're going with this as we, as we look at this genealogy. First of all, this genealogy is, is structured in a very intentional way. It's, it's more than just a list of names. Look down at verse 17, the last verse in this genealogy that's given here. Let me read this to you. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. All right, so you can see that Matthew frames up this whole list of names into three major sections. That's how he wants you to view this. Now, as you're looking at these sections, what's kind of tough about this is there are 14 generations 
But there's actually very different time periods that are listed here. From Abraham to David is a different time period than from David to the exile. And there's actually names that Matthew doesn't include in the list here. He skipped certain names and he didn't include them in his genealogy. You could compare the genealogies in Luke 2 uh, or in Luke 3 and this and you would see different names listed here. Why does he do that? Well, it, it wasn't that he was confused. He didn't make a mistake. There's not an error in Scripture. That's not at all what had happened. Sometimes you could understand this as saying, instead of saying this was the father to this person, this was an ancestor to this person. So they may have been a, a grandfather or a great-grandfather to this individual. Matthew's goal here was not to give us a comprehensive list of every name in this line. So what was Matthew's goal in structuring this genealogy in this way. Here's what I think he was doing. He was organizing this list of names in such a way as to show us, by the way he's organized it, that history, the history of Israel, finds its completion and its culmination in the last name found on this list. It's structured so methodically to point us to the reality that everything is moving. Everything in this list. All the lives that are mentioned. They just look like names, but these are full lives that were lived. There are marriages. There are decisions. There are struggles. There are victories that are found in this family line. And everything in this family line funnels itself toward one individual. One seed who is coming at the end of this family line. The other reason that Matthew structured this genealogy in these sections is to draw our attention to certain key points along the way. Now, if you were to go back through your family history, there would be high points, there would be people who really lived great lives, and there would be others that weren't quite so high. And Matthew understands the history of Jesus the history of Israel, to be the same way. There are high points. There are low points. And he wants to draw our attention to some of the themes in the story of Christ's ancestors. Look at verse 1. He shows you what some of these themes are. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, right off the bat, he mentions two names. There are a lot of names in this list, but he wants you to think about two in particular. He wants you to identify those as important high points in the history of Jesus Christ. So today, we're not going to study every name in this list. And everyone had a great sigh of relief. (laughs) We're not going to go through every name in this list today. But here's a summary of what we're going to do today, all right? I'm going to show you four sketches, all right? Think of, think of Matthew as painting a picture here. Four sketches of the work of Jesus Christ that come from this genealogy. And these four sketches will ignite our worship of him as we enter into this Christmas season. All right, so four sketches of the work of Jesus that come from this genealogy. And the goal here is to ignite our worship of the culmination of this genealogy, Jesus Christ. So let me show you the first one here. First of all, Jesus is the new creation, the new Adam. Now, right off the bat, you're going, okay, I did not see Adam listed in this genealogy. So where are you getting this from? And I didn't see any mention of the creation story. In fact, this seems to start with Abraham. So why are you saying this here? Why are you looking at this? Well, look at verse 1. The very first words of this gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's probably what it says or something like it in your Bible. My Bible too. And the word here that reads genealogy in Greek is actually the word Genesis. All right? In this, this phrase here, the book of the Genesis, or the book of the genealogy, this is used only two other times in the entire Bible, all right? Anybody want to take a guess at to where those two times are found? 
They're found in Genesis 2-4, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and in Genesis 5-1. So, Matthew is trying to get us to think back to those two passages with the beginning of this book. Why would he do that? Well, look at these passages. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And then the second, chapter 5 and verse 1, This is the book of the generations of Adam. So Matthew specifically wants us to think back to both the creation of the world and he wants us to think back to the first man who lived, Adam. If you've read recently the Gospel of John, how does the Gospel of John begin? In the beginning was the Word. Well, what was John trying to do with that? He was alluding back to Genesis chapter 1, to the very first verse In the Bible. And I think that's exactly what Matthew is doing here with the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. He wants us to read about the beginnings or the genesis of Jesus Christ, and he wants us to immediately start to think about the beginnings of creation and the beginning of Adam. Now, why would Matthew do this? Why does he want to draw our attention? And when we think about Jesus Christ, we think about creation and we think about Adam. I think he's doing this because he wants to make a parallel. Here's one beginning, creation, and here's another beginning, the new creation. That's what he's doing here. The old creation began in Genesis 1, but the new creation is beginning here with the birth of this baby. A new age has dawned with the coming of this child. And this new age will dramatically impact all of creation. I think that's what Matthew's doing here. And I think he understands there's a reason that the angels sang when this baby was born. Because this was the dawn of a new era. This event was even more monumental than the original creation. This was the beginning of the new creation. But Matthew also wants to draw our attention to Adam. And he wants us to think about Adam here. Now, what do we know about Adam? Well, as long as Adam lived, we really don't have that much about him in Scripture when you think proportionately to the length of his life. But what we do know about Adam was that he was the father of the human race. And we know that God gave Adam a particular mission. He had a task that he was supposed to to do with Eve. They were to take dominion over the earth and they were to fill the earth with God's image bearers. We talked about that a few minutes ago. Now what we know about Adam and Eve from Scripture is that they failed monumentally at their task. They messed it up. These past couple of weeks at my house, um, I told you I had young kids earlier. My eight-year-old, Caitlin, has been uh, asking me the same question over and over again. She's been asking me, Daddy, why do I have a sin nature because of what Adam did? I'll let any of you feel free to answer that for her. She says things like this. He made a wrong decision. He did that. So, so why do I suffer because of that? Why are my desires for things that they shouldn't be because of what Adam did? To her mind, that just doesn't seem fair at all. And I've tried to explain to her a number of different ways, but I've tried to explain, well, listen, sweetie, you have daddy's blue eyes, and so we're all children of Adam. And so we get his nature because we're his children. We're descended from him. And because of that, we all receive a sin nature when we're born. And here in this passage, Matthew specifically wants us to think of our father Adam, the beginning of the human race. Because he wants us to understand that just as Adam's sin plunged each and every one of us into a sinful life, filled with wrong decisions, wrong desires, wrong choices, just as Adam's decision did that, now this child, 
who's coming at the end of this genealogy, this child's righteousness is going to bring a new beginning of blessing. And now your nature is going to be able to be changed through him. He's going to bring blessing and freedom to many through his life and through his work. He is the new Adam. And I have little doubt that when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, that he may have been thinking about this very passage from Matthew as he wrote these words in Romans 5. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, Through Adam, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, Lord. And surely, as Isaac Watts wrote, Joy to the World, he had that in mind as he penned the third verse. Joy to the world, and here's what the third verse says. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Jesus is the new creation begun. It starts with Him. And He's the new Adam who fixes everything that went wrong with the first Adam. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. So that's the first sketch of Jesus Christ and of his work that we glean from this genealogy. The second one is that Jesus is the true blessing of Abraham. Matthew finishes verse 1. Look there with me. The book of the genealogy or the beginning, the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish nation and he's the man who... Matthew highlights by beginning this genealogy with with him. If you were to look down at verse 17 again, you would see that this whole genealogy is structured around Abraham being one of the key high points of this list of names here. Verses 2 to 6, as Tim read this morning, all those names in there really are written beginning with Abraham and highlighting the man Abraham. Now, if we go back to Adam, the beginning of Scripture, after Adam sinned, everything went into a downward spiral. And as you're reading through the first 11 chapters of your Bible, everything is going horribly wrong over and over again. And that sinful pattern in men's lives culminates, really, with the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And when mankind comes together and promotes himself against God and tries to make a name for himself, what does God do? He scatters the nations, confuses their languages, and scatters them to go all over the world. Of course, God does that in judgment and in many ways in a blessing to them to keep them from sinning over and over again together. And he does that, but he loves his creation. He loves what he has made. And so God answers that sinful action of men by doing something very specific in Genesis chapter 12. God's answer to man's sin, in many ways, begins with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, familiar, familiar verses to you. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families or nations of the earth shall be blessed. Of course, there's so much in this that we could study and we could look at, but I want to zero in on that last little phrase in verse 3. In you, in this nation that I will create through you, in your descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So if you're reading through Genesis in one sitting, you get to chapter 11 and the nations are cursed and spread out throughout the whole earth. And you turn right around in Genesis chapter 12 and you find God promising to bless those very same nations through the seed of Abraham, the line of Abraham. God intends to undo the curse on the nations through a future descendant of Abraham. And of course, the rest of your Old Testament is really just the story of the line of Abraham, the children of Abraham. And very often in the Old Testament, you'll see Abraham referred to, the promises, these promises made to Abraham, you'll see them referred to as the covenant that God made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And it's this promise, this covenant that he makes in the chapters dealing with Abraham that will ultimately bring blessing to the entire earth and to all the nations through Abraham's descendant. So with that in mind, with Genesis 12:3 in mind, the promise of blessing to the nations, I want you to consider this verse from Galatians chapter 3. Paul, talking about Abraham, said this, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news, the joyful tidings that God is bringing blessing to the nations through the work of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel that was preached beforehand to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. And here in this genealogy in Matthew 1, Matthew draws our attention to Abraham because he's reminding us that this baby who's coming, this child, this new creation, this new Adam, this child is the apex. He's the fulfillment of this promise this gospel that was preached beforehand to Abraham. He is the true blessing that was promised to the nations through Father Abraham. And maybe that's why in this genealogy, maybe that's why Matthew mentions four women here. I'm sure this is something that you're all familiar with. As you read through this genealogy, there are four women who are mentioned. And that's highly unusual He mentions Tamar, he mentions Rahab, he mentions Ruth, and he mentions Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Why would Matthew mention these four women? Well, there's a lot of different theories about why he would mention them, but one thing that's definitely true is all of these women were closely associated with Gentiles or were Gentiles themselves. All of these women were part of the nations who would be blessed through this coming descendant of Abraham. So even in the Old Testament, God is beginning to work his blessing toward the nations through the line of Abraham. And that comes to an apex and a culmination with Jesus Christ. It's also quite instructive for you and I when we think about the blessing of Abraham coming to the nations And Matthew, beginning his gospel, talking about Abraham, including these four Gentile women in this genealogy, it's very instructive to us that the very last words of Matthew's gospel are these words. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, as Christ's body, we take the blessing that comes through the line of Abraham to the nations. Listen to these words of another Christmas song that talk about this blessing. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye hear of endless bliss, joy, joy. Jesus Christ was born for this. He hath opened the heavenly door and man is blessed evermore. Christ was born for this. And that brings us to our third sketch this morning. Jesus is the true Davidic king. He's the true Davidic king. Now you can certainly see that Abraham is highlighted in this genealogy. But you can also see how important David is to this list of names here. Verse 1, Jesus Christ, the son of David. Verse 17, he's one of the seams that is mentioned here. And then in verse 6, he's called the king. Attention is drawn to him, and he really becomes the focal point of verses 6 through 11 here, the history of David and his line. So why does Matthew want us to consider David here? Why does he want us to connect David to Jesus Christ? Of course, you know your Bibles. David was the first king in the line of Judah. And David is is really one of the dominant figures in the entire Old Testament. As you read through the book of Kings, as you read through the prophets, all subsequent kings are compared to David. He is the standard bearer when it comes to comparing a king to, to what a king should be in the nation of Israel. He becomes the definition of what a good king in Israel should be. So that's true, but David, just like Abraham... David received some very important promises from God regarding his descendants. And those promises deal with God's plan of reconciliation moving forward for his people. If you want to, you can turn to 2 Samuel 7, but I I can read these, uh, these verses to you from the screen here. You can follow along if you'd like to. But here's what God, through the prophet Nathan, says to David. And here's what he promises to him. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the Son of Man, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You can see here in this passage, there's a lot going on, but there's a tension that I want to draw your attention to this morning. What is that tension that you see in this passage. Well, first of all, you see that God promises to build a dynasty of kings from David's line. I mean, that's very clear in this passage. I'm going to build a dynasty, a house that will last forever here. But in this passage, you also see that God tells David, listen, if your descendants do not obey my word, if they don't walk with me, then they're going to be punished severely. And so you've got this this tension of steadfast love, and yet God requiring righteousness from the Davidic kings. Now, when you take this promise and you start to read through the rest of your Old Testament, you really see this tension magnified. You see God is going to be faithful to David, but my goodness, If you read through the book of Kings, you see how wicked and sinful the kings were. And you see that they come under the punishment of the hand of God. And yet, as they're punished, as David's house is punished, you get to the prophets 
And there's this hope and this expectation that the steadfast love of God is going to continue to the house of David. And there's this expectation that one day a king is going to come who's going to have the steadfast love of God and he's going to obey. And he's going to do the will of God and listen to the word of God. And the expectation in the prophets is that one day that tension is going to be resolved. And you certainly don't see that in the Old Testament. Let me give you an example of that in the prophets here. I'll read this to you if you can't see it. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And you can find passages like this all over the prophets. Israel's kings have not obeyed, and yet we are hoping in a king who will come and who will rule with justice and with peace. There's a phrase used in verse 1 of Matthew, the son of David, to describe Jesus Christ. And that phrase is used over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew to identify Jesus. And he's called the son of David because Matthew is drawing our attention to these promises from the Old Testament. He's saying Jesus is the kingly fulfillment of these promises. Jesus is the resolution of the tension that we see in the Old Testament. And I'm sure Charles Wesley had some of these very thoughts in mind as he penned these words. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, joyful all you nations rise, join the triumph of the skies with the angelic host proclaim Christ. The Messiah is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. That's why he's called the king. That's why he's the son of David. And that's why Matthew draws our attention to David here in this passage. And so thinking about Jesus as the king, thinking about the promises to David, that brings us to our last sketch here in this genealogy. This will take a little bit of explanation. Jesus is the true return from exile. Verse 6 here, we saw, begins with David described as the king. Goes all the way to verse 11, describing the descendants of David. But when you get to verse 11 here, now all of a sudden you find Matthew talking about not a person, but an event in the history of Israel. In verse 11, you can see that he talks about this king and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. This line of names is interrupted here with an event in the history of Israel. And so when we see that sort of interruption, we want to take note of this and we want to pay careful attention to this. And then if you look back, This deportation, this exile to Babylon, he draws our attention to that yet again. This is the exile. This is the moment of the exile of the people of Israel from the land that God had promised them. So there are three moments here in verse 17 in the history of Israel that that Matthew wants to emphasize. Abraham is the beginning of the nation. 
David, in many ways, is really the high point of the nation. And then the exile to Babylon is the low point of the nation of Israel here. They'd been in the land of promise. They'd had God's blessing on them to a certain extent. They'd had the presence of God with them through the tabernacle and through the temple. And here we have the absolute low point in the history of the people of Israel. And so Matthew clearly wants us to identify this low point, and he wants us to think about this low point, this exile, in relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, in order to do this, we need to think about our Old Testament's very carefully here for a minute. And why would Matthew put so much weight on Israel's exile? And why would he want you to be gearing up for the birth of Jesus and to begin to think about Israel's exile from the land? Why why is he doing this? The real reason for Israel's exile from the land had never really been dealt with. That's why Matthew wants you to think about this exile here. What happened? The people sinned from the time of going into the land, through David, through the kings, to the point of exile. The people sinned and they were punished for their sins and they were sent out of the land. They were taken away and under the rulership of a foreign king. But in the Old Testament, when they came back into the land in Ezra and in Nehemiah, you find the same sort of people back in the land. They're they're in the promised land and they're rebuilding the temple and they're rebuilding the walls of the city, but you find the same sort of people in the land. Why? Because the real reason for their exile had never really been dealt with. It had never been. In your mind, way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Where is Israel in the book of Deuteronomy? They're poised to go into the promised land. Okay? They're ready to go into the promised land. And the book of Deuteronomy is Moses saying to the people, here's what you need to do in the land in order to stay in the land, in order to not be exiled from the land. And in Deuteronomy, particularly in chapters 28 and 29, you can actually read about Moses predicting Israel's exile from the land. He tells them, this is what's going to happen to you Because you're not going to obey. And in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, before they even step foot in the land, Moses tells them, here's your real problem. Here's what you need to solve. Let me read this to you. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. And here's what they needed. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. What did the people really need? They needed new hearts. In biblical language, they needed their hearts to be circumcised. They needed a complete change of nature, of who they are. But if you read any portion of the Old Testament, you will see over and over again what Moses tells them here, to no longer be stubborn, You will see over and over again, the people are consistently stubborn. And what Moses says here is is true for the people of Israel. What was the real reason for their exile from the promised land? Why? They needed new hearts. They needed a fundamental change of nature. That had to be addressed. That had to be dealt with. Their sins had to be forgiven for them to walk with God and for them to dwell with Him. 
Israel's problem goes much deeper than just being kicked out of the land of promise in the book of 2 Kings. The people were physically kicked out of the land, but being exiled from the land was was like a, a miniature example of the true exile that happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden and exiled from the presence of the Lord. They were kicked out of His presence in Genesis chapter 3. And that was the true exile that humanity entered into when Adam and Eve fell into sin. And Israel here is only exiled from the land because... The real problem had never fully been dealt with and had never fully been addressed. So Matthew mentions this exile here because in many ways, even though the people physically were back in the land, they'd never received new hearts and they'd never returned into the presence of God. Did you know in the Old Testament, when the exile happens, The glory of the Lord departs from the temple and there's no record of the glory and the presence of the Lord ever going back into the temple after that. They rebuild the temple, but the glory doesn't come back. And so what the people need is forgiveness of sins and they need to be in the presence of God. So Matthew's genealogy here ends, verse 17, with this emphasis on the exile. And the emphasis is that the people need forgiveness of sins and they need to return and dwell in the presence of God. So, it's with those two great needs, forgiveness and the presence of God, that you start to read about this child in verse 18. And this blew my mind when I started to read it this week with fresh eyes after looking through this genealogy and thinking about the exile and the real reason for the exile and the problems that Israel faced over and over and over again. And the exile from Eden had never really been dealt with. Look what Matthew says about this child who was coming. Verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then listen to this. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the work that he's coming to do. The real problem for their exile, the exile from Eden, that's what he's come to do. This is why he's the morning star of a new day. This is what no prophet, priest, or king could ever accomplish. No one in this genealogy could ever do this. That's why we rejoice at his coming. Let's read a little bit further. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Which means God with us. Back into the presence of God. The forgiveness of sins that we needed from exile from Eden and return into the presence of God absolutely, definitively, finally dealt with here by the birth, the death, and the resurrection of this child. And the amazing thing is, to come back into his presence, we were exiled from Eden, but he comes and seeks us. He comes and is born as a child in order to bring us back into his presence. He humbled himself to the point of death by becoming a man in order to bring us to God. Let me read you... One more verse from a hymn. And you may not have thought about this hymn in this way before. Let me read this to you. In light of the exile that we just talked about. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. 
Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. That's the work of this child. That's why Matthew structures his genealogy this way. So I hope this morning, we've got a couple of weeks left until Christmas. I hope that maybe in some way your eyes have been opened to the glory of Christmas past, of everything that leads up to the birth of our Savior in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew felt strongly that this birth was both the beginning and the climax. This birth, this person. Everything turns on what happens with this child. And Matthew wants us to understand that. I was telling Bethany this week that some sermons are calls to action. Here's what we need to do. And others are calls to simply behold and wonder. And my prayer this morning is that that's what this has been. There's no action plan for you to go out and do this afternoon. There's just a call to behold and to wonder at this child that has been given to us. Let's pray. Father, we're just overwhelmed with how you sovereignly orchestrate all of history, all of these lives that we we see their names mentioned, even the ones that we know more about, Abraham and Adam and David and All of these names, all of these lives, everything leads to and points to the seed who has come, the culmination of the history of Israel, the climax of all of human history, Jesus Christ. And our prayer even this morning, Lord, is that you would turn our hearts toward him, that you would affect our emotions and our worship even in the coming weeks as we prepare our hearts to celebrate his arrival celebrate the results of his arrival in our lives, Lord. We're so thankful for the grace that we've been given. Even as we read in Deuteronomy how you chose Israel, we're we're so grateful that you have revealed your truth to us, Lord. That you have given us the chance to even study your word this morning. We love you. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name that we pray.